This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. We are joined on the line by Dr. Belchetz, Dr. Brett Belchetz, who is our 640 Toronto medical expert and working in ER right now. Doc, it's good to have you on the line. First of all, how are you doing? Uh, good morning. Well, I, I think we're we're all feeling a, a little bit exhausted and a little bit anxious. Um, I, I know all of my colleagues are are you know scrambling to deal with this. We're we're all you know obviously a little bit terrified every time we go to work, and um, in many settings, patient volumes are just off the charts. So you know, the last week I can tell you there there's probably not been a night where uh, I stop working before midnight. Um, so it's certainly been been a, a rough few days, but but we're doing our best to hang in there. And so what's it looking like in emergency rooms? How are you dealing with people that, you know, they can't get through to Telehealth Canada because it has been just jammed and they're worried that they might have contracted COVID-19? Explain the process and what we're seeing. Yeah, so we're, we're having different approaches at different hospitals. Um, what we're seeing, it's kind of almost eerily similar to, to what we saw during SARS, which was an incredible decrease in the volume of patients who are coming for regular routine needs. So, so a lot of people who have basic things like abdominal pain and, and chest pain and all the things that they should be coming to the eMERGE for aren't because they're terrified of catching this illness, uh, which is you know obviously a very bad thing for public health. But at the same time, we're seeing an incredible increase of people with flu-like symptoms who are all very much rushing into uh, get those assessed and find out if they potentially have COVID-19. And, and so some hospitals are standing up dedicated screening centers. I know my hospital has several screening centers where we are directing patients specifically to go there for screening for COVID-19. Uh, but the really big challenge here that, that we're facing is that in the departments, uh, we are really needing to isolate those cases that have respiratory symptoms from all the other cases in our Facilities were built to allow us to isolate a few cases at a time, but not the volume of cases that we have right now. And so we're continually concerned that uh, all it takes is one slip up, one patient who has COVID-19, who who gets in the door, who we just don't identify at the door as likely to have COVID-19, and they get into an area where there's lots of other patients. And very quickly, you can have an outbreak that affects both patients and staff. So, you know, we have lots of things that we're doing to try to make this work and, and to see lots of patients. But, you know, I think all of us on an ongoing basis are just really afraid of how easily all of this could go wrong. You brought up SARS. I just want to ask you, how does this compare to SARS? Can you even compare it to SARS? And I know that we learned a lot of lessons on procedure uh, during SARS, uh, but are they even applicable in this situation? I think that this is just a whole other order of magnitude from SARS and, and really different from SARS. So SARS, I, I think, was just terrifying to everybody in a way that this isn't, uh, in that if you got SARS, uh, it didn't matter really how old you were. You were probably going to get very, very sick, and your odds of mortality were actually quite high with SARS no matter what your background was. So there was this visceral fear that I think a lot of people had of SARS that many people don't have of this. But that being said, um, this is just so much more widespread and it's spreading so much more easily and affecting so many more people than SARS ever did. And our containment measures that were quite effective, actually, uh, with SARS, we were quite easily able to track contacts and figure out where the disease came from and isolate those cases and shut down spread. We just haven't been able to do that with this. So, you know, you never saw the societal shutdown that was happening um, 
during SARS that is happening now. And the other thing that I'll mention that really makes this so much harder is during SARS, there were a couple isolated pockets of outbreaks. So, you know, we saw the cases where it started um, in Southeast Asia, and we saw cases here in, in, in Toronto and a couple of other places. Um, but the rest of the world was okay. So overall, the global supply chain worked. If we if felt that we were going to run short on supplies like ventilators or masks or other things, we knew that we could replenish those supplies. In this particular outbreak, that's just not the case. You, you know, we're looking at a worldwide economic shutdown. Many of the manufacturers that make things like ventilators and masks and protective gear are not able to manufacture anymore because everybody is asking for more all the time. And so, you know, you have a widespread fear that, well, on an individual basis isn't as bad as SARS, on a systemic basis is much, much greater. All right. You just brought up the idea of, uh, you know, how we're not able to get some ventilators from sources that gave us ventilators in the past or sent them up to Canada. I know that Americans are. Nope, we're holding on to all of ours. Um, The prime minister is going to speak at 1115. Odds are he will have a senior government official on with him and they'll be talking about the issue of getting the industry to manufacture medical equipment such as ventilators. Are are you running out of equipment? Where do you sit right now? I think we're managing so far. Um, you know, there have been a couple moments where we thought we were going to run out of some critical supplies. So uh, at one point in the first few days, we actually came very short of running out of the, the actual swabs that we use to, to test patients. Um, those have been replenished, so we're okay with those. Uh, we have ongoing concerns about shortages of protective gear, so masks and gowns and all the things that we need to do to provide care safely. Uh, we're perpetually worried about uh, getting to a zero supply of those. Ventilators so far are okay, but, but what I'll say is... I, it all depends where this goes. So right now, you know, there's limited community spread. Uh, we're early in the, the penetration into Canada. We don't have that many critical cases, although there are certainly a growing number of those. But if this is to get a lot worse, which is certainly you know what we're worried about when we look at places like Italy and, and see what they've experienced, we will very, very quickly far surpass what we're able to provide. So, so very quickly, we just will not have enough ventilators to take care of all the sick people that are there. Dr. Belchetz, I I was reading an article about an anesthetist who is uh, living in Perth, Ontario, and he has a a PhD in respiratory mechanics. And he has found a way to take one ventilator and double the power and rig two hoses to it. And he said in just 10 minutes, with the help of some extra tubing, made it possible for uh, to double the number of patients on that uh, ventilator. Is anybody talking to him in in your... uh, in your world to find out how we could do that here? I I actually saw that same story, and I have to say kudos to him. I think that's fantastic innovation. Um, I I don't know so much who's speaking to him, but certainly um, I think every hospital uh, should be speaking to him to understand how we did it so that we can duplicate that if we need to. Um, You know, I think that's going to gain us some time. Um, That being said, if you look at some of the stats, if we really have a full-fledged outbreak, uh, there are some who are estimating that we might need as many as uh, several hundred thousand ventilators at once in this country if we really do have a, a full outbreak all at once with, with lots of people getting sick. And the problem with that is that, you know, if you're looking at several hundred thousand, we have under 10,000 ventilators in the country. So even if we can double or triple the capacity of ventilators um, overnight with techniques like that, it still leaves us very short. But I definitely think um, that's just an incredible innovation. I think we need to be seeing more uh, more innovators like that who are trying to figure out how to get the best out of our existing equipment without us having to manufacture more. I have a feeling we will. You brought up the uh, this story earlier on in the, in the conversation about the fact that, you know, there was somewhere you'd run out of gowns at the beginning of this pandemic. Uh, yesterday, Doug Ford mentioned he was talking about having Canada Goose and other clothing manufacturers make the gowns. So apparently the government 
is on that. Uh, but I want to ask about your you as, as healthcare professionals. How are healthcare professionals actually monitoring their own health and making sure that they're going to be okay? Because they've got families to go home to as well. And, you know, it, the idea of, of working extended amount of hours, it's got to take a toll on your mental health. Well, I, I think all of the healthcare workers that I know are, are in a state of just ongoing anxiety right now. I think every day they go to work, I think they're afraid of getting sick. And and more so, I think they're afraid of bringing that infection back to their homes. And, you know, we're, we're, we're embarking on a lot of procedures during our shifts to, to properly put on protective gear to work in teams so that if you do, if you make any mistakes, putting your protective gear on somebody else will spot for you so that they can help you to fix those mistakes. Uh, really carefully removing protective gear after treating patients. Uh, there's all of these things that we're doing. But, you know, that being said... Um, especially when you're dealing with critically ill patients where you need to do things like CPR and intubate them where you're putting breathing tubes down their throat. All of these uh, involve a, a lot of intervention and, and actually can result in a lot of bodily fluids uh, flying into the air and being what we call aerosolized, which, you know, even with the best of protective equipment, often that does expose workers to a lot of risk. So I think all of us in the field, um, and particularly those of us that are dealing with critical patients, are are. I'll be honest, quite terrified every day we go into work. Um, it, it, it really is a, a battlefield mentality. And, uh, you know, it feels like we're, we're fighting a war on an ongoing basis. I got home yesterday. I went out. I ventured out. Uh, I was very careful about keeping a safe social distance. But I did want to get some wine because, uh, you know, uh, there are some people that think, OK, well, this is not a time to drink. But I, I don't know. You, you kind of want to keep some normalcy in your life. Uh, you know, it's not bad to have a glass of red wine with dinner here and there. Um, and uh, I came home and I immediately thought, you know, I feel like I need to take a shower. Talk to, can you speak to that? I mean, if you've been out in public, is that irrational to, to want to, uh, wash your hair or, you know, if you're working as a grocery store cashier, is that something that you should consider doing when you come in from dealing with the public? I think at the very least, you should be washing your hands really thoroughly every time you come in the door to your home. So, uh, do that 20-second scrub that everybody's uh, speaking about. So scrub your hands solidly for 20 seconds, making sure that you get all areas, the spaces between your fingers, the, the actual palm of your hand and your nail beds as well. Um, and I always do that twice. So I wash for 20 seconds, I rinse, and then I do it again. So that would be the bare minimum. Uh, you know, showering your whole body would really depend on what kind of work you do and, and how likely it is that other parts of your body were touched by surfaces or potentially, you know, particles in the air. If you are somebody that is working in a job where you are in close quarters with others, where, you know, there's people that might have been three or four feet away from you, where there's a chance that they sneezed and it got on your arm or got on another part of your body, absolutely, you know, taking a shower is not going to do any harm. And if it makes you feel psychologically more at ease, then it's going to do a lot of good. So what I say to a lot of people now is do what you need to do for your mental health. I think a lot of people are feeling anxious throughout the day and you know whatever rituals allow you to get through this you know as long as they're not harmful um i would say by all means go for it all right there's a story that i need your clarification on or your opinion here um there is a warning from the french health minister uh, that ibuprofen could worsen covid19 symptoms the world health organization initially advised against taking ibuprofen. Now they've backed up on that. Can you tell us what ibuprofen does and what's the difference between ibuprofen and acetaminophen and what this story was all about and maybe put our minds at ease on where we should land if we're trying to treat fever symptoms? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. without getting too technical, those are two very different classes of drugs that we typically use for two purposes. One is for pain control and the other is for fever control. Uh, the one pharmacological difference between the two is is 
uh, ibuprofen is, is part of a class of drugs that we call non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, which means that they have anti-inflammatory properties. They, they tend to decrease inflammation in our bodies, which is actually very helpful for a, a large number of conditions. So that warning went out. There was really no science behind it. It, it was based on a hypothetical idea that, that I, I'm not even sure where it came from, that somehow uh, taking the non-steroidal anti-inflammatories could somehow impair our immune response and therefore you know, were a bad idea in, in this condition. Uh, what I would say to, to anybody is that you know, we, we use non-steroidal anti-inflammatories left, right, and center in medicine in the setting of infectious disease. They're incredibly effective at actually uh, impeding some of the harmful parts of our immune response while not impeding the parts that we need. And they're very effective at reducing pain, inflammation, and fever. And acetaminophen is very good, too, specifically around uh, reducing fever. So uh, I, I would say there's no science behind that. And, and certainly, you know, we'll watch the evidence and see if anything develops. But for now, um, at least in, in the, the care settings where I'm working and, and in my clinical practice, uh, I would advise any patients that these are both very useful drugs to be taking in the setting of a flu-like illness. Dr. Belchitz, uh, before I let you go, I want to go full circle to what you were saying earlier on uh, about who should be coming to the ER. Can you leave our audience with a message on who and uh, who should come to the ER and when you should be in the ER? Yeah, I think that's that's a great place to finish on. So it, it's really important that those people with mild symptoms are not coming to the emergency room uh, just to get tested. To, to be honest, we're not even testing people with mild symptoms anymore. We're just telling them to go home and self-isolate. So, you know, if you're having a, a cough, shortness of breath, fever, et cetera, but you're well-managed, you're not short of breath, you're able to keep well hydrated, and it's just your typical flu, stay home. There's lots of services. Uh, there's telehealth that you can call. Um, you know, I run a company that gives you online doctor services. We actually have a free, fully OHIP-covered COVID screening service. Use those kinds of services to see a doctor from home to find out whether or not you're sick or need to go to the eMERGE. But certainly with mild symptoms, don't rush in. Now, for anybody who is uh, suffering emergency symptoms, so you're struggling to breathe, suffering, su- struggling to hydrate, um, confused, lethargic um, in ways that are you know just unmanageable for you at home, these are the people where I would say, yes, you may want to consider coming to the eMERGE, but for your basic flu-like illness, uh, really, uh, you're just coming in and exposing yourself to more illness or potentially exposing others to your infection. Dr. Belchess, uh, how do we access your online service? Uh, it's at uh, getmaple.ca, so G-E-T-M-A-P-L-E.ca. So if you register for an account and, and click into the application, there will be a tile. It's available between 9 a.m. and 6 p.m., the tile that says OHIP uh, COVID screening service. So you click that, and wait times are about an hour or so to speak to a doctor. Uh, but we connect you uh, live with a doctor where you can have a video chat with them. They can go over your story and your symptoms and give you advice about what to do next. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thanks for your time. It's very generous. I know you're uh, overworked right now, and I do appreciate it. My pleasure. Have a great day and stay safe.